0: Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 10.45 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. And on this final Sunday of Advent in particular, during which we've uh, been Unpacking these four various names of the Messiah that Isaiah gives us in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We've studied wonderful counselor and mighty God, everlasting Father, and this morning we arrive at our final title for Jesus, which is Prince of Peace. <clears throat> and I think any uh, honest Christian evaluation of this name as applied to Jesus has to begin with two big and maybe unsettling questions. Did Jesus really bring peace to the world? And secondly, did Jesus even claim to bring us peace? First, did did Jesus truly bring peace? Isaiah, the prophet surely foretold that he would. He clearly prophesied that the Messiah would be the prince of peace and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end that on his day, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, and great shall be the peace of your children, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. God says, I will heal you, I will lead you, restore comfort to you. Peace, peace, says the Lord, to the far and to the near. Behold, I will extend peace like a river when the Messiah arrives. And just listen to Isaiah's continued vivid description of what the Messiah's reign of peace would look like. He says it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore. Beautiful description of peace. Hence Austin's painting for us. Thank you again Austin for sharing his artistic gifts with us. And you see here the visual of swords and spears being broken, and beaten, no more war. And then Isaiah paints this picture even more dramatically for us. Just a couple chapters later in chapter 11, he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. This Messiah is going to be from David's line. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and listen to the peace he's going to bring with him. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. The little child shall lead them. The cow and the barrel graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy. And all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. According to Isaiah, this Messiah is going to bring such supernatural peace, literally beyond uh, uh, the nature, the natural created order, even the animal kingdom, that he would completely undo the curse of the fall, that pain and death itself shall be no more. And to be sure, At Jesus' birth, the angel chorus seems to announce as much of him. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. But one doesn't have to look very far around our world today to be a little skeptical. And here's just a, a small sampling of the news headlines from this past Friday morning as I sat down To work on this sermon, Russia launches new missiles into Ukraine. Minnesota man who admired mass shooters charged with possession of a machine gun. Tyler Perry opens up about his past suicide attempts as he mourns Stephen Twitch, boss. 22-year-old NBA draft pick retires from basketball, citing anxiety, calls it the darkest times of his life. FIFA rebuffs Zelensky's request to share a message of peace at the World Cup final. This is war, Californians say, seeking affordable housing alternatives. Giant aquarium housing 1,500 fish burst in Berlin, injuring two people. This doesn't sound like peace on earth, does it? There's still plenty of swords and spears, guns and missiles out there. And the only reason I didn't read me Headlines about lions eating lambs or children getting bitten by cobras is because, unfortunately, that's all too normal still. That's, that's not newsworthy. We don't have to check the news for proof, though, that anxiety and hostility still run rampant. You just look in the mirror. I can speak for myself personally. The peace was in short supply in the Duval Home this past week our son Elijah tested positive for RSV which is not fun for him but it's dangerous for our 3 week old newborn I know we're not alone I received a call this week from one of our senior saints who had to go to the ER for shortness of breath turns out they found a spot on her lung and now she's on antibiotics for a month to see if that clears it up or if she's dealing with something much much more serious Another dear sister came in this week for counseling because two of her close family members are at odds with one another. feels like her family, she said, is coming apart at the seams and she doesn't know how to hold it together. Similar text from another sister, worried about her marriage. Text from another member, father had just passed away. In what sense can we call Jesus our Prince of Peace with so much turmoil and war and chaos still raging all around us, still raging within us at times. And what about my second question? Did Jesus even claim to bring peace? Just listen to Jesus' own words to his disciples from Matthew chapter 10. He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Maybe some of you are dreading next week's family get-togethers around the Christmas dinner table. Say amen to that promise. Like, I don't know about Isaiah's promise about no more war or conflict, but I know Jesus' promise here that he's going to make my enemies those people around my own dinner table. Yeah, I can say amen to that promise. So do we just have the wrong guy? I mean, are the Jews Right? Because if you ask your Jewish neighbor, why don't you believe Jesus is the Messiah? They're going to reply, show me a lion cuddling up next to a lamb, and I'll believe. But as long as lions kill lambs and Russians kill Ukrainians, as long as swords and spears still abound, I'm going to keep waiting on the Messiah, the true Prince of Peace. Well, ironically, I, I think my second question this morning might actually help us answer the first one. Did Jesus really bring peace? In Jesus' own words, his answer, right there from Matthew 10, in a sense, no. Not in the way that many were expecting. Jesus did not bring peace in the way that so many were wanting. Physical peace. He says, I have not come to bring that kind of peace yeah first century Jews you're still going to get beat up by the Romans I haven't come to bring that kind of peace you're going to have to wait till my return my second coming for that kind of peace now, Jesus came the first time 2,000 years ago, to bring a fundamentally different kind of peace to us it was as he told his disciples in John fourteen twenty seven. he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. But then he qualified it by saying, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Again, Jesus lived in the middle of the Roman empire with its Pax Romana, the Roman peace that they established by bullying everyone else into submission. Jesus said, my peace isn't like that. I'm not just going to be a bigger bully. I'm not here to end your wars with each other. I'm here to end the most catastrophic war of all, your war with God. And in the process of doing that, Jesus actually does bring us peace in four very significant ways. See, we all have four basic relationships. And God intended for each of them to be characterized by a deep, abiding peace But as we're going to read in just a moment, something went horribly wrong along the way, and it shattered that fourfold peace. But Jesus really did come to put the pieces back together for us, to be our Prince of Peace. So with that introduction, I invite you to stand with me as you're able. The reading of God's Word from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, and this week we're going to add verse 7 in as well, but then we're going to read a few excerpts from Genesis chapter 3 of all places, and I'll explain why later. To really diagnose our peace problem, we have to go back to the beginning, Genesis 3, and we'll even go farther back than that, the beginning beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. We'll start there. Hear the word of the Lord. For to us a child is born, To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And we turn to Genesis 3 and read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees, the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground now because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken your dust, and to dust you shall return. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And now, would you, Holy Spirit, illuminate minds, hearts, ears, eyes, to understand, to receive, to see, to hear your word, your truth, just as you inspired their writing so many years ago in your holy, perfect, inspired word. We pray this, that we might see your son Jesus in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So this title, Prince of Peace, in the Hebrew Sar Shalom. The word Sar is pretty straightforward. Prince, ruler. This is how the Messiah is described clearly in Isaiah, verses six and seven of chapter nine. Isaiah tells of his government increasing. He will sit on the throne of David to establish peace over his kingdom. He's got a kingdom, so he's clearly a ruler. Since Pastor Thad already. Um, Sort of covered Jesus' sovereignty, his dominion, his ruling power for us under the title Mighty God two weeks ago. I want to focus this morning particularly on the object of his rule. How's he going to rule? How's he going to use his sovereign ruling power? And it we find here is to establish peace. He is the prince specifically of peace, of shalom. And this word is, I think, more interesting. Strong's concordance renders shalom as completeness, wholeness, soundness, welfare, or peace. Here's a good summary of all those synonyms. Shalom is things being exactly as they should be. That's shalom. Things being as they should be. And this was the state of the world. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, even before the excerpt from chapter 3, we read, God originally created everything good. So much so that by day 6, he called it very good. Mayod tob. Things were just as they should be. Shalom. And we see this primordial shalom permeating every facet of our early relationships. As I said, we've all got four basic relationships. You've got your relationship with self your relationship with others, your relationship to the world, and your relationship with God. That's, that's our four-fold outline we're going to be unpacking this morning. And just listen, sort of three movements throughout those four relationships that we'll examine. Listen first to the shalom that originally permeated all four of those relationships for Adam and Eve there in the garden. In their relationship with self, we read the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed in every possible way. Yes, physically and literally, they were naked, but also mentally, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. They were free to be completely open and honest, vulnerable, transparent, exposed, to be fully themselves without any sense of guilt or shame about it. You and I cannot even imagine that kind of freedom today in a fallen, broken world, such nakedness and yet unashamedness. Secondly, in their relationship to one another, we hear Adam's song of joyful praise over his new wife. He prays, this is at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Man, she is worth leaving home over. He says, for we shall become one flesh, perfectly unified, completeness, wholeness. My other half, shalom. As for their relationship to their world, thirdly, they had dominion over the animals. God gave them every delicious plant for food. He put them in a perfect garden as their home, filled with life-giving rivers precious jewels. God even allowed them to cultivate the land to give them that sense of purpose that only comes after a good hard day's work. And while they worked the land, the land also worked for them, with them. It's beautiful synergy. Most importantly though, there was shalom in their relationship with God himself. Every day in the cool of the day, we hear God would come and take a stroll with Adam and Eve through the garden. Perfect intimacy, no shame, no secrets. But in an instant, everything changed in Genesis 3. Where there was once shalom, wholeness, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they invited sin and brokenness into the world. As we read Above, sin broke their relationship with self. When they ate the fruit, their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. They were naked all along. Didn't bother them before. But now they knew. They knew something was wrong. They sewed fig leaves together and they hid themselves. They were ashamed. So they tried to hide. Sin broke the relationship with each other. Instead of one flesh, togetherness, now they're against one another. They're pointing fingers at one another. God asks, what have you done? Adam says, it's her fault. And it's kind of your fault too, God, because you made her and gave her to me. Pointing fingers. Moreover, interpersonal peacelessness now becomes a part of the very curse of sin that all of humankind inherits going forward. We hear a woman's desire shall be contrary to her husband, but he shall rule over marriage conflict its inevitable in a broken world fallen world sin broke their relationship with the world itself, creation itself whereas once the garden had worked for them now the ground itself is working against them rebelling against them cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat from it thorns and thistles it's going to bring forth for you, till you all the way till you return to the ground and you turn back into dust yourself And that's the worst part of all, is that the Bible says that through sin, death now enters the world. Last week, you remember, we worshiped Jesus as our father of eternity. God himself is the very source of life. But most tragically of all, number four, they are now, Adam and Eve are now cut off from that source of life. Sin breaks relationship with God himself. Instead of running to God, to take their leisurely stroll through the garden. Now Adam and Eve run from God to hide. Number four, Josh. And because they rejected relationship with him, God sends them out of the garden, paradise lost, shalom broken. And for millennia after that, peace was in very, very short supply. But God promised through the prophets, to send a prince of peace, to send one who would wield peace. To wield means to exercise power or authority as in ruling or dominating. This prince is going to wield, exert peace to the uttermost, to the ends of the earth, forever and ever, amen. Of his peace there will be no end. And I want to spend the remainder of our time together this morning showing you how Jesus did just that and is doing just that, how Jesus is wielding peace over all four of our key broken relationships and restoring them to shalom, to wholeness, to harmony. First, Jesus restores our relationship with self by bringing us inner peace. You remember that verse from John 14 we read earlier. When Jesus promised, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Well, the rest of that verse, he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you're looking for a, a peace like the absence of all earthly troubles, then you've come to the wrong place. I, I'm not promising you that. In fact, I Jesus promised, if you follow me, you're going to have troubles in this world. They hated me, they're going to hate you. He says, but if you want peace as in the ability to look into the face of your troubles and not be troubled by them, then I'm your guy. See, there is this external, objective existence of troubles, or there's the uh, external... Uh, objective existence of peace. But you can't have both. The, the two are mutually exclusive. Either, you know, the, the, the context, the circumstances are peaceful or it's conflict. But then there's also this internal, subjective experience of peace which Jesus offers us in the midst of whatever is going on outside us. Whatever the external, objective uh, existence of peace or lack of peace. Chaos is, we can have internal, subjective experience of peace. He said that in John 16, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world, and he says, I'm telling you this, that in me you may have peace. Now what does Jesus mean? He says, in me you will have Peace. What he means is we can have his very presence, Jesus' own spirit, living inside us. That's the context of both John 14, where he offers peace, peace, I give you, and John 16, where he says, take heart, I've overcome the world to give you peace. The context in both is Jesus' telling his disciples, explaining his death and departure to his disciples. And Jesus says, hey, it's actually better that I leave you and go away back to the Father. And like the disciples, you and I might rightfully ask, how in the world, Jesus, could it be better for you to go away? I mean, isn't that what Christmas is all about? We're celebrating that Jesus came here. It's good that Jesus stepped off his throne in heaven and, and came down to be with us on earth. Now we're supposed to celebrate Jesus' leaving us? It's better? Jesus says, I'm not leaving you as orphans. He says, I'm leaving you a helper, a comforter, my very spirit who will now dwell in you. See What, what could be better than Jesus living right here on earth with us? The answer is Jesus living right here within us. Christian, do you realize that Jesus is closer to you than he was to his own disciples 2,000 years ago while he walked on this earth? Jesus closer to you if you were in Christ and he is in you. Galatians 4, 6. Because you are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And what is the effect, the result of having the Spirit of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, living inside you? Galatians 5.22 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. We could go on, but we'll stop right there at peace. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. Jesus brings us peace come what may in life. That's why Philippians 4 encourages us, do not be anxious, don't be worried, don't be troubled about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what? What does God promise? You know the rest of that verse? Does God promise he'll take away all your troubles? Let your requests be made known to God and he'll remove all those external objective worries facing you? No. He says, and the peace of God, that internal subjective experience of the pacifying presence of the Holy Spirit, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You can have peace no matter what's going on out there. Now, does that mean that Christians will never worry? Does that mean that when you receive that phone call, that diagnosis from the doctor this week, that when you receive that news that your loved one passed away, when your spouse walks out on you, does that mean, does being a Christian mean being totally unfazed, having a stiff upper lip? I don't think so. Jesus wasn't a stoic. Jesus cried when Lazarus died. Jesus sweat blood when he was about to die. But in both those cases, he also prayed. He prayed just like Philippians 4 tells us to. Take our supplications because Jesus knew where to take his anxieties. First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. And God promises when we do, he will give us peace. This inner peace that Jesus offers us is even better than that. It covers even more than that. Because remember, when Adam and Eve sinned, what they experienced in the garden wasn't just anxiety. They experienced shame. And shame is a far more powerful, pernicious emotion even than anxiety. You know, guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. If shalom is everything being right in the world, shame says everything cannot be right because I'm here. And at the very deepest level of who I am, my personhood, I am wrong. I am broken. I am unlovable. I have no worth or value. That's shame. And as a matter of fact, we were unlovable and broken, flawed to our very core. This is what the Bible says says is true of us because of our sin. And yet, the Bible goes on to describe the good news for sinners like you and me this morning. That yes, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. By nature, children of wrath. Animosity with God, no peace. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved, so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the gospel. The good news that we, we really are far more Sinful and unworthy than we ever dared to imagine and yet we are far more loved and accepted than we ever dared to hope for. Not because of anything we've done or could do or else we would brag but simply because of everything that Jesus has done for us. The undeserved grace and love of our Prince of Peace. And here's the thing when it comes to shame and how we view ourselves, if God now sees us that way, if God now, when he looks down from heaven, sees us not as deplorable sinners, but as beloved adopted children who have been clothed in the perfect, spotless, imputed righteousness of his own son, Jesus, then how much more so ought we to see ourselves that way? I know more shame There's no room for shame in the Christian's heart. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. I am chosen. I'm not forsaken. I am who he says I am. Not who my feelings tell me I am. I am who he says I am. I'm a child of God. Number two, Jesus wields peace over our relationship with others. He offers us interpersonal peace. So we've got this... Internal experience of, of peace that surpasses understanding, the fruit of the Spirit. Now we've, we've also got this interpersonal peace with others. Now, Jesus has already told us that he was going to divide father from son, mother from daughter. So, in what sense can he offer us interpersonal peace and reconciliation? Well, as his new sons and daughters, we discover Jesus is making us into a new family, a spiritual family. Hear this in Matthew 12, and the crowd told Jesus, hey, uh, Jesus, your mother and, and brothers are looking for you. And Jesus said, who are my mother and brothers? That's whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. That's my true family, my spiritual family. And it turns out that our spiritual family, spiritual blood is thicker than water. It's thicker than anything. Spiritual blood is thicker than generations, millennia of prejudice and hate. So imagine this with me. It's hard for us 2,000 years later to get a full sense of the context that, that, that the Apostle Paul was, was writing to here uh, when he gives us this glorious truth. But just try. Imagine being a Jew in the first century and being told all your life that Gentiles were dogs. That was just the nickname, synonym. You know, you, you say Gentile or dog, same thing. Your rabbis instructed you to take a bath whenever you came home from the marketplace just in case you accidentally bumped into a Gentile while you were there. There were Jewish proverbs about God creating Gentiles just so he'd have kindling to stoke the fires of hell. Okay, you got got the picture? This is the animosity between Jews and Gentiles. Now listen to how radical the Apostle Paul's words must have been then sounded in that context. He's writing here to Gentile Christians in the church in Ephesus who are also gathered in this body and coming to faith alongside Jewish Christians. We know there's there's issues there. They're working out. They still want to s- sit in separate places and so here's what Paul says. He says, "You Gentiles in the flesh were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It probably took everything in the racist Jews in the church, hearing these words read aloud from Paul's letter, to keep them from standing up and saying, Amen. Start our own church, Jews only. But now, Paul writes... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Jew and Gentile now made one in Christ and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Between us, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So much here we can unpack. We'll preach through Ephesians eventually, but for our purposes this morning, here's the simple takeaway. Jesus restores Shalom to even the most divided of interpersonal relationships. And so God can now command us, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, Romans 12. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4. Unity, the bond of peace, fellowship, Galatians 3. Keep going on and on. Paul talks about Galatians three, in Christ Jesus, there's now n- not Jew or Gentile, slave or free. Let's put it in 21st century context words. In-, in Jesus Christ, there's there's not a black church and a white church. There's not you know an upper middle class West County church and you know the downtown you know poor poor church on the side of the street. We don't go. There- there- there's no such thing. There's not same sex attracted and straight Christians. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Shalom. Number three, Jesus isn't just restoring shalom to humanity. He's restoring it for the whole world. Uh, Jesus brings intergalactic peace. I thought at first saying international peace, but that's not big enough. I mean, the peace he's bringing is, is bigger than just international. It's not even just for, for our world It's for all the universe that is no longer in the state that it should be. Romans 8 tells us this. It says, for all creation was subjected to futility. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew hevel, our favorite word from our Ecclesiastes study this fall. All of creation subjected to hevel, this this entropy and decay, the curse of the fall. Then it goes on, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning for redemption, Paul says. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What's Paul talking about here? Again, remember, our sin, cursed, not just our relationship with ourself, didn't just bring shame to self, not just with one another, hostility, in interpersonal relationships, our sin cursed the very ground that we walk on. Every square inch of creation has been affected by the fall. But Jesus here is promising that he's going to return a second time to make all things new. New heaven, new earth, new glorified resurrected bodies for all of us too. No more sickness or death or decay. That's what he that's when he's going to fulfill Isaiah's prophecies from Isaiah 2 and, and, and chapter 11. No more war. Lions cuddling with the lambs. It's going to be amazing. So what is he waiting for? And that, the answer brings us to our fourth and most important piece of all that Jesus is offering us, and that's peace with God. Jesus is waiting to bring full shalom to everything, Until more rebellious, estranged sinners have had the opportunity to be reconciled to peace with God, their Father. Jesus offers us peace with God. Intercessory peace. To intercede means to act or interpose on behalf of someone else in difficulty or trouble. And is there a better word for what Jesus did for us? To intercede, interpose on behalf of someone in difficulty and trouble, helpless. Or secondly, intercede, to attempt to reconcile differences between two people, to mediate. For instance, this is exactly how the New Testament describes Jesus. You see, our sin doesn't just bring shame towards self, hostility toward other, painful toil against creation, Worst of all, our sin separates us from a holy, perfect God. And we are warned so by none other than the prophet Isaiah. The most explicit caution, admonishment in all of the Bible about the effects of sin, Isaiah 59, verse 2, "...your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear." Here's what that looks like illustrated. If we were to illustrate our spiritual condition, many of you will be familiar with this famous easy diagram. Once upon a time, you know, there was no chasm there. It's just us and God holding hands, perfect shalom, walking through the garden together. Sin causes a rift between us and a holy, perfect God. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here is the good news of the gospel. We'll illustrate this one as well, and I'll read about it for you from 1 Timothy 2, that there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. See the cross in the middle now? covering the chasm, bridging the gap between sinful, fallen humanity and holy, perfect, transcendent God. That's Jesus. That's what his death on the cross did for us. He took all our sins on himself, in his body, on the tree, and traded his righteousness for our unrighteousness, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. Romans 5 puts it this way. Since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Paul says God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. That's the gospel. Jesus purchased peace for us in his body on the tree. All we like sheep had gone astray, Isaiah says. We turned everyone to our own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us, what? Peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And because Jesus has reconciled us to God, listen, listen, I can just go on and on, God's own words describing the peace we now have with him. This one might be the most, the, the best. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We we rightfully deserve God's wrath and his punishment for sin, for rebelling against him, rejecting his good, kingly, sovereign, princely rule over us. We deserve hell and sin and death and separation from him, but there is therefore now no condemnation, none of that, no shame, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the only one. He's the perfect one. He's the one who could condemn us. And he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died for us. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God the Father, indeed interceding for us. Jesus didn't just intercede for us 2,000 years ago. Jesus is still interceding for you because you're still figuring out new ways to sin. We're we're sinning all the time. And Jesus is interceding all the time. He's at the right hand of God the Father right now, sinning for those of y'all sleeping through the end of the sermon. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can tear down this bridge? I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, Jesus Christ is the bridge, the only bridge to reconcile to bring back into relationship you and a holy, perfect God. But here's the thing about a bridge. It does you no good unless you walk across it. Okay? Jesus has made a way. Romans 5, he's made access for you back to God the Father. But a bridge does no good unless you walk across it. And that's what faith is. Faith is walking across the bridge. Faith is stepping out trusting that Jesus is able to, to break your fall and, and the punishment you deserve, the chasm you deserve, that Jesus is able to hold you and bring you to God the Father. And He's promised to do it. Jesus says, all those I, I've called to myself, I, I, I sustain, I keep. No one can snatch my sheep out of my hand. No matter how far you try and stray, no one snatches my sheep out of my hand. Will you, by faith this morning, walk across the bridge that Jesus has provided for you? He is himself our peace, our reconciliation with God. Will you be reconciled to God, your Father, this morning because of the peace, the Prince of Peace, Jesus, who is himself your peace?